0: I'm looking for, um, you know that chief of staff character in Veep with Julie Dreyfus? And that person stands behind her during every meeting and whispers into her ear, this is what you need to know. Oh, the Japanese prime minister's daughter's name is blah. And I, I just, I really love that. And we're in the early stages of that.
1: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Unsolicited Feedback. I'm Brian Balfour, founder and CEO of Reforge and your host. This week I'm actually joined by Adam Fishman as my co-host as Fareed is out this week. And we have an amazing guest, Joff Redfern, who was most recently chief product officer at Atlassian and prior to that VP of product at LinkedIn. Now, as you'll notice in this episode, we've got a few audio issues. I unfortunately ran into some Xfinity internet issues. Maybe in a future episode, we'll do some group unsolicited feedback to Xfinity and treat it like a group therapy session. I'm sure everybody has some things to get off their chest around that. But despite that, the content is absolutely excellent. We appreciate you listening through this episode. Other than that, let's dive in. My internet's been going in and out constantly Uh, for like, multiple weeks and then oh, no. this morning like literally 20 <laughs> minutes ago there it is again started again and i was like oh god and so then i looked at it and they were like i looked at the outage uh, like report and they were like oh yeah we're doing some work in your area and i was like oh things to set up. and then, They're and then they had this little the sim- podcast they had some little they had these little symbols and there was to expect how many outages you could expect and <laughs> the inverse was literally like you could expect one outage, or you could expect somewhere between two and 100 outages. And I was in the two to 100 category, so I was like,
2: thanks thanks for the help on this one. Uh, oh, exactly. my God. Uh, you, need to Anyways. Get, you need to get some of that sweet, sweet fiber internet. Don't they have uh, Sonic up there for you, Brian? I don't know. I'm literally going to start looking into it now because it's just been... I think... completely unusable if they have sonic fiber i would run to that company adam and joff have you two ever met no never met nice to meet you joff sorry i just launched right into my sonic love
0: there yeah no i've I've been taking notes on sonic i'm a starlink guy Mm. i live on a farm in santa barbara So there's no fiber or even copper That yeah it comes to the farm because I'm on a ridgeline. Yeah. We're looking at Santa Barbara. Wow.
2: We've got 18 yeah. and a half acres in Mendocino County in Hopland. Very rural.
0: Oh, super cool.
2: Yeah. We can not oh. DSL there, though. So I haven't tried. Yeah. Uh, we're probably the only house that has it, but I haven't tried Starlink. I've been thinking about
0: it, but does it work well for you? It's It works great. I've had really good life with it. Cool, Huh. Yeah. I, I'm learning all sorts of new things
1: today because I did not know about that about you either. Oh, tremendous. <laughs> that you at the, had that. the Hopland house. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I want your life. I like my wife and I love Santa Barbara. Yeah. Yeah. But we just don't know. We don't know anybody down there. I'm, I'm going to start looking on Redfin today. So, Joff and I originally met because before I committed to Reforge by Subspot, I decided to interview at a few companies. To see if that was still something I wanted to do, LinkedIn was one of them, and Joff was one of the people who interviewed me, and that interview experience was actually quite memorable for a few oh, no. na- for that's a few different reasons. That's always,
0: that's <laughs> always scary. So it's either, it's either because it was great or it was a complete shit show. Oh, 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 no, 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 no. The
1: LinkedIn experience was amazing. The things I remember from it were: one is everybody. Just the sort of like the mission orientation came spilling out of everybody's mouth. Same exact. It's yeah. so clear that the company had sort of really pounded that in people's heads. Number one. Number two is I can't remember if it was with you or if it was with somebody else that I interviewed, but there was a question about metrics and how you would potentially like measure success of something, mm. and I did like a whole thing, and then. At the end of it, you either you or this other person—I can't remember who—brought it back to the mission. And was like, well, our mission is to like increase economic opportunity hey, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah bring and, economic opportunity uh, to remember the global workforce. Yeah, and then talked about how you might measure that, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, that's a better answer than <laughs> <No, laughs> that. Yeah. N- number three was I got a half hour with Jeff. Uh, I was Jeff say, Wiener, yeah. the, the yeah. CEO at the time, one of the most fascinating half hours I met, he did not need a half hour because he picked me apart in like eight minutes, uh, which was just like, <laughs> it it was like an experience in like, it itself to just yeah, be on the other end of that and like watch that. And I was just like, I was blown, I was blown away. I was like, I can't believe yeah. you like picked me
0: apart yeah. in that that fast at the time. But yeah, that, that was yeah. what I remember from that experience. That's a good way to describe it, picking it apart. <laughs> there was a woman who led strategy there, Laura, and we talked about this after one meeting that we had, because Jeff, every time a new person would enter the inner sanction, the tight group of 15-so people, we'd have a meeting every Friday and we would go through the business for hours. And in that first meeting, maybe the second meeting, he would go really deep with a new person. And Laura called it the Swiss cheese test, which I loved because when you're making Swiss cheese, the cheesemaker really wants there to be good whole structure. But because they're in these big blocks, they, they don't know if they've achieved the whole structure or not. So what they do is they take a probe and they send it into the center and then they pull out the probe and then they look at the core sample. So when he goes deep on you that first or second time, it's essentially a core sampling. And you pretty quickly can tell the Swiss cheese makeup of that person. And I don't think he consciously knows that he's doing this. I think that's just the way he ticks. But it's it was really fascinating. It was great to see how people, different people would react to that because it's really hard. Um, to have great great answers, because he's got such a breadth of skills on both the left brain and the right brain. But I would say that the people who are best at it are the people who are most comfortable with wabi-sabi and just the beauty and imperfection. And they don't lose their footing when they don't have a great answer. Or they'll just come back and say, I, I don't know, but here's maybe how I would think about it. And you would watch that and you'd be, there's something that's so authentic and genuine about it that even though there wasn't, you know, the perfect Dr. Spock answer back, you're like, no, that's actually a good a- good answer, <laughs> you know, checkmark. I like that for authenticity. Oh, yeah. He sampled my core for sure. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah. Got that. You got the Swiss cheese test, my friend. Yeah.
1: In, in another life, he's probably like one of the best therapists slash executive coaches to oh uh, yeah execs exist yeah. so you know yeah he just goes right at yeah him, so. yeah Adam, for sure
2: i'm trying to remember how you and i originally met and i we- can't remember so the lore the i remember because i have a memory like an elephant so way back in the day i got invited to these like very small sort of growth roundtable discussions and there were like a handful of us And then we started like extending that into slightly more folks and we had it one time at, I think the creative live offices or anyway, I remember that. I remember that. And so we were around a table and there were a bunch more folks and you were in town because you were living in Boston still, I think at the time. Oh yes. Terrible choice. And so that's where we met. We basically just, a group of people got together and we used to just talk about growth topics. And then... Not only that, but we found out like we're both from Michigan. We both went to the <laughs> University of Michigan. We oh, wow. both my one of my college roommates was on the rowing team with Brian at Michigan.
0: That was the story of how that we was a spark. That was a spark. <laughs> Love at first sight. Yeah. Those sessions are so fun. Those yeah. get togethers are are a blast. I dropped if I
1: want to hear about your epic hike and trip. Yeah or why you joined VC life. Maybe the two are connected somehow. I I don't really
0: know, but what I'm interested in. Tell me about one of those. Ooh, maybe they're connected a little bit. So I, I left Atlassian about six months ago. As you know, I've been a product leader my entire life in Silicon Valley. Was most recently the chief product officer at Atlassian. And after six years, I wound up leaving, and part of why I left was I really wanted to focus on my life bucket list. Neither of my parents lived particularly long. My brother recently had a cancer scare. So I have been collecting this list of things that I wanted to do in my life outside of work. So certainly having a family, being a father being a chief product officer of a publicly held company. All those things were on my life bucket list, but there was this other set of stuff that was really, I think, interesting. (laughs) One of them was to sail across the Pacific Ocean. I've sailed across the Atlantic Ocean a couple years ago. The Pacific is on the list. I want to solo sail to Hawaii. And then another was to hike the John Muir Trail. The John Muir Trail, for, for those who don't know, The Pacific Crest Trail goes down the entire west coast and it's a couple thousand miles and it's absolutely gorgeous, but there's 230 miles of that which are just knockout gorgeous and those are through Yosemite. So starting at Happy Isles, Yosemite, winding all the way down to Mount Whitney, where you end. So on my list was to hike the John Muir Trail. In fact, it's been on the list for years. And the thing about it is you have to win the lottery. So the national park system runs a lottery every year. And of course, everyone in the world. So when you're on there, it's not just U.S. citizens, it's people from Germany, people from Japan that you're meeting, because everyone wants to hike the 230 most beautiful miles of U.S. forest land. So I won, I just, it was like this. the gods were coming together and said, hey, let's have this guy win the lottery and you're gonna solo hike that. So I I won the lottery, I got out there. It was just amazing. There's this John Muir quote and I wish I could remember the words but the sentiment is essentially, I'm going out to the woods to go inside to figure out who I am, to find out what I'm about. And that was a lot of what the journey was. I spent 16 nights in a tent. I averaged about 12 miles a day hiking through mountain passages. You're you're sitting on average up in 10,000 vertical feet. I live in Santa Barbara, so I'm actually at sea level. (laughs) So just getting acclimated up to 10,000 feet and then running Up to the top of some of these mountains, Uh, Mount Whitney, for example, is over 14,000 feet. It it takes a lot out of you. And to boo, when when I was out there, there was the tailwind of that hurricane that ripped through. So two of those nights was just sitting in sleet and hail and rain in my tent and try to hike in between breaks and the weather to keep on moving because I had a schedule I was trying to keep. Yeah, so I went to do my life bucket list, and I thought I would do that for a while, like not six months. Like I was going to take more than that. But in the in that journey, I wound up meeting Menlo Ventures in my time off, and I had known the some of the partners there for a while because they had looked for a board seat for one of their portfolio companies. And we had a number of different chats, and, and just for a variety of reasons that I will spare you, I decided to be a career switcher and try something something new. So I'm a product guide turned venture capitalist and I'm coming up on my fourth week here. So I'm a certified expert as a VC. So if you have any VC questions, be sure to ask me. By nature, you're also a certified expert on
2: many other things now because of your four weeks of VC. So you could talk about the war in yeah, Ukraine. Exactly. You could talk about the crime wave in San Francisco you could die, like yeah. so many things you're instantly an expert on now
0: oh for sure and adam don't for a minute think that i won't pull the expert card i'll probably pull it out in the next you know 30 40 minutes together at least five times you know, wait you know, wait yeah take it immediately Call to twitter it. take me. it immediately to twitter yeah. that's where it belongs oh yeah i got to dial up i got well because I was early at LinkedIn. LinkedIn is my uh, my medium of choice. But I, as a VC, of course, I need to. And please don't call it Twitter. It's X. Oh, sorry. Yes, X. I need to dial up my X game because I'm I'm like X Factor, looking for X people on X. Yeah, I'm all X. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Are you going to focus on a
1: specific area? Is it or is that not how Menlo works?
0: To start, the funds that I focus on focus on seed and A, and then some B. And you know, the areas that focus for me initially, not surprising, are where I have been spending a lot of my time. So that's three focus areas. I love software teams. A second is uh, the future of work, and then a third area is really anything with a network business. So send your friends send your friends my way <laughs> that's the, that's the, the from... that's the cta yeah exactly joff's a great dude you should go talk to him if you need money <laughs> yeah well you're he, you're operating uh, in the
2: right space in the right stages at least i, mean, yeah. I want to be a late stage investor right now oh my god a little bit yeah. more of a grind so yeah yeah for sure oh. i was doing some stuff
1: with long journey ventures and yeah. Yeah. Uh, just past years been so intense that um I'd... Dial my time back. There, we have an opportunity fund, and I would say that we're starting to see the sun kind of crack through yeah. the clouds. In this, from a venture perspective, sure. right, in the sense that there's some deals that look pretty interesting. Founders have realistic expectations on the current environment. Like the, these are things that didn't exist. I would say, like early this year, from a founder perspective, though, <laughs> it's, it's it's like still not. Still not pleasant, and it is probably going to take I don't know at least another year, maybe two years, to actually work it all out of the system. But um, but there's you know from from an investment perspective, there's actually starting to be some interesting ops.
0: Yeah, for sure. Brian, was that your words of encouragement? Hey, you're entering the VC at a good point in time. It's, it's a little it's bit of a, a shit Pick your head up, Pick your head up. It's not going to be off time. <laughs> exactly. exactly. You can do it. We believe yeah, in you. If I, yeah, it was a complete mess, man. It was a disaster. And now it's almost livable and approachable. Good luck with that, Redfern. You're going to do great. But, like, you want to you wanna enter at this time. If it happens to J-curve. You want to oh, yeah. enter at the
1: bottom of the J-curve and ride the upswing, Absolutely. especially
0: in venture where you- No, I, look, I, I, yeah. I feel good about joining the VC industry now. I think what you probably experienced, Brian, like a year, year and a half ago, would have been really hard for me two years ago that the, the amount of money sloshing around in the system was maybe there was a misalignment with What was actually being created yeah
1: yeah totally all right well let's transition into the topics for today i'll kick us off with one especially jock with you entering venture land and the craze the craziness around just the ai movement kind of continues to move forward at blazing speed so a couple things from last week chat gpt added a bunch of capabilities that it can now says it hear, see and speak, meaning that they just had basically added capability around browsing as well as multimodal stuff around image, audio and video. And it's interesting that this starts to feel like it's marking a shift in the sense that I feel like in the last year to 18 months, we've been on this tear of model upgrades from GPT two to three to three and a half to now four. And it's now all about adding kind of additional capabilities to the underlying model. It seems to be what the news or the the feature cycle is turning into. And that just starts to open up a lot of new doors. I I specifically do not have access to some of these features yet, but I actually did was tracking, I've been reading a bunch about just those who do some of the early capabilities. And this is a blog post by James Gallagher And they kind of broke down some of these capabilities, which I thought were very interesting, which is that around uploading an image, you can basically get questions and answers from it. You can identify objects. You can even identify things like the different types of currency and sort of add up those things like in a picture. Some of the more interesting ones, though, I thought were things like, where is it? Like. It can solve an entire crossword puzzle or Sudoku. Here it is. Yeah. Entire crossword or Sudoku in one go just by like looking at the image and the hints around it. I saw some other things, some interesting Twitter threads around its ability to analyze meaning out of the image. So like actually understand, not just understanding what's in the image, but what the image actually means as well, which I thought was pretty fascinating. So anyways, a lot of movement around this. But I think the flip side of all of this, which we've actually mentioned a couple times on the podcast, but actually haven't gone deep on, which we want to go deep on today, is this challenge that AI has a high growth, but high churn issue. Yeah. Andrew Chen, who's also an investor in Reforge, I thought captured this well in every tweet thread, who said... AI apps are experiencing high growth and high churn, but these are closely related. The abundance of new apps creates excitement, but eventually the party is going to end. To see you succeed in the long term, founders need to focus on retention and low churn. Many AI apps are simply new websites wrapping AI APIs, which are not effective at retaining users. They're merely single player tools. As the market progresses, AI apps will face slower growth and lower churn as the novelty effects go away. Which I very much agree with. So I think to kick off this conversation, I'm Jop, I'm interested in from your perspective, especially as you're merging into VC land, I'm interested, are there specific AI tools that you've been playing with? How have you been finding them? Are they working well for you? Or are you kind of sensing this novelty effect? How are you thinking about this space overall? Great
0: question. I have been playing with all of them. The way that it, in general, I've been playing with them is I'm looking for a co-creator. I'm looking for Um, You know that chief of staff character in Veep with Julie Dreyfus? It's that comedy show, and that person stands behind her during every meeting and whispers into her ear, this is what you need to know. Oh, the Japanese prime minister's daughter's name is blah. And I I just, I really love that. I went out and I bought the URL joff.ai because what I'm really looking for is I'm looking for that chief of staff. And I want that troubleshooter, problem solver, dial remover, all-around, everything-doer. And we're in the early stages of that. So one of the applications that I've been spending a bunch of time with is Pi. As you may know, Pi was founded by Reed Hoffman, founder of LinkedIn. Mustafa, uh, the CEO over there, has written a great book about the coming wave of AI. So I think that's a, another really Im- important thing to take a look at. One of the things about Pi is you're trying to get value out of it as quickly as possible. But in order to do that, it's like building any kind of relationship. It has all of this uh, information it really needs to know about you. Particularly, you know, how does any what kind of information is Joff looking for? How does Joff like to be communicated with? Does he like short and concise answers? Does he like you know you to be longer and elaborate? And uh, so I've been spending I've been spending time with Pi and ChatGPT. I have on my mobile deck. Uh, so if you open up my iOS phone on my home page, I have Claude two, I have Bard, I have ChatGPT, and I have Pi. And whenever I am looking for additional information, I'll choose <laughs> I'll randomly choose one of them. I'll put my request in, and then if I don't like that answer, then I'll go to the next one and the next one and they're making so much progress. And I think you're right. The, this advancement to a multimodal LLM is really the going to be an unlock on a lot of stuff. I want to just speak to the application. And sometimes I want to see information back. 60% of people are visual learners. Um, so just getting back text and not getting back an infographic or a diagram, I think those are some of the changes that you know, that we're looking for. You said something particularly
1: interesting, which is like, we've, we had to completely refine on redefine onboarding for the web. And then we had to do it again for mobile. And this feels like another moment that that has to be redefined. I'm interested, like, if, if you were giving like product advice on what are these products, what, like, what, what would you be talking to them about related to this?
0: I think one of the things to focus on is what does the new onboarding look like? So onboarding, when I think about onboarding, I think it serves two purposes. First, it's educate the user on the application. It's like show me around the app. We see this on the web, right? We we go to a new web page and there's some feature cues, some app cues that go around and point out things that are are helpful. And that's not too similar for from, if you had a house guest over to your house, you'd show them around. You'd say, hey, this is where the bathroom is, the kitchen, the thermostat is over here, so that you can be comfortable. So one aspect of it is there's an opportunity to educate me on, well, what, is the, what does the application actually do when I enter? And none of the applications do that today. But the second one, which I think is far more important, is in onboarding, you want to start to personalize the application so that it can be more useful to you. So for example, you know LinkedIn is less valuable if you don't have a profile set up or if you if you don't have any connections. So we found that once you reach 30 connections, it's an unlock, and you've really created a more robust network. So right off the bat, when you entered into the mobile application, we put more emphasis on trying to get you to fill out that profile and create that first connection just cuz we want the application to be more useful to you and and that's not dissimilar from Spotify right i open up Spotify for the first time it's like tell me about your musical interests or i go to a new site and it asks me you know there's usually a bubble saying hey what <clears throat> what genres are are you most interested what kind of topics do you like business topics do you like weather and so on and so forth so When I open up, and let's stick with Pi for a second, when I open up Pi, there's nothing there. It said that it's gonna be my personal assistant, it's gonna gonna answer questions for me, it will be my advisor, it will be my companion, yet it hasn't done anything to learn about me and the way in which I wanna interact with it. And I find that to be really problematic. And I'll give you some examples. This morning I woke up and I asked Pi, Hey, I'm in San Francisco. What's the weather going to be like? And instead of just giving me the the answer, w- what it did is it started asking me more questions. It was like, well, do you want uh, do you want a forecast or do you want the weather? I you know I can look at precipitation. I can tell you about you know all these things. I'm like, no, no, just can you give me the answer? You can qualify afterwards if you're trying to learn stuff about what I like but there, there needs to be a better way. And I think part of personalizing one of these apps like Pi is that as the app builder, I would seek to build trust as quickly as possible with the user of the application, because it's in that trust that they're gonna get the real information that's most valuable. And in, in ultimately in success, my personal, my personal agent, my joff.ai, It needs to read all my emails it needs to look at all of my notes it needs to look at all of my applications and i'm actually willing to do that i i want it to do that i want it to look at my linkedin profile or my instagram page because i want it to learn but i will only do that if i trust the thing (laughs) so it's like how do i get how do i build up enough trust so that that user will start sharing some of that information. Because once I start to get into that, come up the learning curve on Joff, the more valuable that I can be. But right now, none of that's really happening. In fact, each session that I have with Pi, it's like starting all over again. It doesn't remember that I like lists of things. I like to get at least 10 things back. I like them to be bulleted. I don't like small talk. You never have to be apologetic if you don't have an answer. You never have to say that's a great question. Cause I don't I don't know if that's necessary. It's like that, that it doesn't matter. It feels starts it's, to feel weird. Yeah. It starts yeah. to feel weird. It's like don't don't, you know. Yeah. But yeah. that that's what I, I, I that's what I would focus on. So onboarding, education, personalization. Personalization's more important than education. The way to get personalization is to build trust. How do we build trust as quickly as possible? And then I would probably also look at things that I know out of the box about the user. It's like what what are you an iOS user or are you an Android user? There's some differences I can learn. What country are you coming from? What's your zip code? There are things that I can pick up through the web browser that you're coming through or the mobile client that you're using. I can I can infer some things and I I just don't feel like I don't feel like it's using enough of that the right way. I think this is an interesting
1: example of not all friction is bad friction, right? It feels like a lot of these AI products have basically removed any and all friction from the upfront experience. But, you know, one of the things we do talk about in Reforge a lot is, Hey, there, there is good friction and there is bad friction. And good friction is like the type of friction you need to add to the experience that helps you actually create those moments downstream those aha moments that are actually habit forming and i think with ai this you know as i was thinking about this before is that this is compounded by what i would call like the horizontal product problem and horizontal products like loom or notion or an Airtable, right uh it's typically that activation is the biggest bottleneck in those products because it's pro is its biggest weakness right these tools can be used for so many things uh, which is great, but at yeah, the same yeah. time, that makes it really hard for a new user to understand how should I ideally be using this to like really get my value out of the project. And so that's just really hard to understand. But with some of these AI products, it, it feels like this horizontal activation product is like multiplied by 100 times. The, the amount of uses you have for like, a chat GPT or BARD or something like that is even more than something like a loom and a notion in all of those pieces. I was trying to think about this a little bit in relation to like what exists in the world today. That was the thing that hit me was uh, that these, yeah. these have a similar problem.
0: I really like that idea that there is good friction. Have you ever seen the BJ Fogg behavioral change model? Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. They, this professor out of Stanford, he draws this X and Y axis and on one axis is friction and on the other is the desire to change. So he's like, what changes people's behavior? It's like the higher the desire for change, like the easier it will be to change behavior or the least amount of friction will be, uh, will help you actually in that change. But what I hear you saying, Brian, is that, look, that's, well, that's true. <laughs> These things don't, I come back to this point that I was trying to make and you were helping me articulate is like if if it doesn't know about joff, it's it's going to be less valuable. And I I just want it to I want a little bit of friction. I want it to ask, hey, do you want me to that you know chances are you have a LinkedIn profile. Do you do you want me to take a look at it and get to know you a little bit better? If if so, you know, what's the URL or what's your name and I'll and I'll look it up.
2: I think one of the things. So I I have s- somewhat of a insider's baseball perspective on this. I actually advised the inflection AI team for three or four months at the end of last year as they were building out some of the earlier like internal only versions of this and kind of training the models and things like that. And I was I'm just looking back at my notes from like September of last year, and I we went through the idea of the how to get to an aha and habit moment, this sort of like sign up, set up aha habit approach. And I think one of the big challenges is exactly what Brian mentions. I remember now going through and doing a bit of a use case map with them where I was like, well, what is the problem that this thing is solving? And who is it solving it for? And what are your alternatives? The problem is it's really broad. Like it's solving an infinite number of problems for people, right? Depending on who loads up the thing. And so, you know, I think they were looking at it and probably still are as the main alternative here is going to Google and and searching for something, right? I mean, uh, Mustafa was at Google for a while. He's part of the DeepMind team. And so I think they wanted to build something that was going to eventually be the starting place for you, uh, as opposed to going to Google and getting like, I ask and I get one answer. I want to ask and get answers that I can refine and refine. And you see Google de- doing this in search results with, you know, did you, other other ways of asking this question and things like that, they've been peppering their, their SERPs right. with this stuff. AI is like kind of d- designed for this, right? It's designed to be conversational. But the problem is this blank canvas problem. And we talked about, you know, do you get around this with prompts to people? Do you, do what you're saying, Joff, which is like, I asked it for the weather. And does it give you the weather right away and then ask for refinement? Or does it ask for refinement first? Seems like probably for you, they should have done the former, right? Instead of asking for refinement, they should have said, hey, here's the weather in San Francisco. You should wear a sweater today. Instead of, well, did you want it now? Do you want it 10 days? We're like, "What what do you want? And then I think the other problem there is... Now that you've asked Pi, for example, about the weather in San Francisco, the next time you ask it for the weather, it should know exactly what it is that you want, and I don't think it will yet, right? So that's that's one of the nice things, you know, and the way that ChatGPT or the OpenAI team has tried to work around this is with the context training, where you can literally tell it how you prefer to be talked to. So you could put in things like, never apologize to me, you know, or... Don't thank me for asking a really great, great question because I don't really care, right? Like if you're supposed to be a trusted friend or a chief of staff, chief of staff's not gonna go, Adam boy Joff, we'd ask the great questions. They're just gonna be like, No, yeah. here's your information yeah. and like You
0: know, it would be cool if people on my team did say that more <laughs> often. For some reason they didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting you say that, Adam, because I I wasn't aware that those custom instructions existed in ChatGPT. Yeah, few are, I think. And I, yeah, I just I just saw them. It, they asked two questions, what should I know about you and how do you want me to respond to you? And then if you do a search, you're going to find on X and other places a whole bunch of different prompts that people have engineered. Mm. To get you some really fine tuning and maybe that's one way to approach it what would, would i one thing you you were saying adam that made me think is you know getting back to this personalization question it's do you try to get that information from the user a priori or do you try to get it ex post facto yeah. are you trying to get it up front or you're trying to late bind and get it afterwards Yeah. And something like search, Google search, is late binding. They don't stop and try to ask you a bunch of questions. They're like, just search, and I will learn from your your behavioral thing. And and normally that that could work well. I, I think the problem that I run into with with Pi is that I have alternatives out there. Yeah. And the thing is, I and I'm rooting for it because yeah. I really love the people yeah. and I. I'm excited for it, and I think you know. I know knowing, knowing the, the folks behind it. I mean, they will crack it. So if, of course, it's just a V1 yeah. thing we're we're looking at. And I have full confidence, but I I will say that I don't. It's like I don't have time to keep on grinding in there. Yeah. And I and I will if it starts to like respond to my grinding in there. Like it remembers some right. of the stuff that I tell it. But it's when it's not remembering it from session to session, it just it feels like a like a lousy friend. Yeah. Like you just, hey, we talked about that yesterday. What what happened? Yeah, this is a major life event for me, and you know, you're you're asking me to re-explain things is not confidence inspiring in my, and my good friend, my companion. And, and
2: I know that they do want to get to that because of the conversations mm-hmm. that I had with that team. Because I think the magic with something like this, with like trying to use it as a chief of staff or a trusted friend is, you know what a trusted friend would do when you ask it a question or talk about something that's happening in the future? They would follow back up when that thing comes and they would be like, hey, whatever happened with, you know, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. if you were telling a friend right. you were going to be on this podcast today and you wanted to prep for it and and whatever, your friend might follow up tomorrow and be like, hey, Jeff, how's that podcast recording? What'd you, what'd you guys talk about? You know, and then you would tell them. And and so this idea of kind of how do you... When you think about forming habit with a product, this idea of re-engaging you based on the a contextually relevant moment that you had with it is super powerful, but I think probably going to be... You know, I think we're probably a little bit away from being able to do that. Although that does sound like that's a sure. a stated sure. goal for some of these guys. You
0: know, you know what's kind of fun about this podcast is you get to be the critic yeah. and not the creator. <laughs> and it's like this is crazy yeah. frigging oh, hard for sure. Um, and we're we'll you know, we're gonna sit here and critique it because it's it's a lot easier yeah. than than creating. I mean, just think of mag of the magnitude of the problem. Yeah, you're you're in pie. Let's say there are six billion adults in the world, folks over age eighteen. The just the sheer diversity of culture, religion, education, economics is astounding. Right, and then you're going to create a general pur- purpose application that is going to be fine tuned to each and every one of them. Yeah. Go, yeah. And you're like, oh, but it's
1: rap? Is it? But I, but I think you're actually making the point. For why, like why you actually need to start with something more, even something more narrow. Even if your aspirations are super general, oh. right? And to get there, it's typically this path where you do start with something narrow. You get a habit, and you can start to move to adjacent. Uh, you start to move to adjacent areas. I think Google's in the position to do what they do, which is like literally no friction, is because they own your entry path you know through like the browser and android and, and and some other pieces but we're not in that world anymore to your i think you made the case earlier right there are alternatives if you are trying to replace some type of incumbent i think yeah it's Typically you've got to start with something a little bit more narrow and expand from there versus trying to take like the buckshot approach yeah. right? the shotgun approach. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Well and and to your point, I think the incumbents, you know, in the consumer land, Google has unfair data rights because I have so much of my consumer life in Google between calendar and mail and news and it just goes on. Photos. And then on the my my professional life, Microsoft has an astounding amount of information on a large part of of the world, right? With the Office Suite, and so th- those two are gonna you got those two incumbents. They've got a a large amount of personalized information ready to be unleashed. With a uh, hey, can I have permission to look at this? You know, a checkbox away from yeah. getting to some of that information. So the you know if you circle it all the way back to what you were that question you were asking, Brian, it's okay, there's a new onboarding. We did it for the web. We figured it out for mobile. Now we've got to figure it out in this natural language chat environment. and we we can pick up some of the patterns that we've learned before, but we really need to start inventing and trying and and making progress on it quickly. yeah. And I think on that note, I think I'm a I meant note. I wanted to, because because you're
1: right. Like the, the beauty of this podcast is we can be the critic, but we yeah. all know we've been in that we've been in
0: that seat before. We know how much this, this is. So, this is like so much pressure on me. I'm like, man, how am I going to do it, Brian Adam? Yeah. We can't no. just critique yeah. stuff. We have to yeah. never critique something without offering a suggestion yeah. on what to
1: change. This, is where, this this is where I'm going. I'm going to offer suggestion. I always <laughs> like to try to. to I always yeah. try to like to to go to the yeah. other side of it. And and I think to your you mentioned something about like borrowing patterns from the past. I don't think this is the long term solution for AI, but I, I do think that point of like to help people transition into these new AI user experience, there does need to be some type of bridge, something that feels semi familiar with a product that you've experienced before. And then maybe we, we take the leap later is so going back to my analogy around horizontal products and then taking the ingredient from Adam, which is talking about these context windows, right? Horizontal products have solved the activation problem by building out these massive template libraries. You can look at this in like Miro, Figma, Notion, all they've all created like ecosystems around this. And these templates basically provide quick starts into habit forming use cases for folks so that they don't have to create from scratch. And I think these context windows are an interesting opportunity to do something very similar where you can take your power users, the small, very small percentage of folks that have figured out this feature, have kind of customized it, right, and somehow translate that into a whole library of context windows. Maybe that's like the new template, right, and somehow design an onboarding experience around this to get a slightly tighter experience. That was was just one idea that was kind of floating through my head as you two were talking and, and maybe a place I'd be starting if, if I, if I were these folks, why, why do do the, why do people have to go to Twitter and search for all of this information? Right? Like, why is that not embedded into the product ecosystem?
0: I'm gonna, I'm gonna riff, I'm gonna riff on that. So I, I'm at Pi. I'm a senior product manager. I'm going to create a project. Of course, projects always start with project names. I'm going to call my project swipe right after Tinder. And I'm going to go, I'm going to create a new onboarding experience, and I'm going to use pairwise ref, pairwise refinement to try to help someone to create their own personal agent that is essentially help joff create joff.ai. Like that's the that's the stated goal. So I'm going to show you different modes in which I can interact with you. Like, hey, would you like me to use a woman's voice or a male voice? Would you like me to have short and pithy answers or not short and pithy? Are you serious or are you fun? And you're just, when you get into those pairings, I think you you run, because I see this a lot in conjoint analysis, right? Whenever I'm working with a research team, they're They're like do you like this or that because people are really good at figuring that stuff out it's like when you overwhelm them or ask open-ended questions they come back with a lot of stuff so it's like do you want a or b Mm -hmm. okay and then and then you start to get smart about it it's like hey if the person likes a and a equals b then they're gonna it properly they're gonna like c so i think you can get a lot of information from a few you know a few decision points that you have to make and then i would i'd sit down and say what are the What are the the biggest unlocks? Like, what are the most critical decisions that I could have that user make to help me personalize my response to them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I probably head in that direction. But I, you know, the other thing as we're talking about it, how many products raise your hand? You know, have you released and without onboarding? That was the very last thing that you did. You're, you're like, I didn't have time to do the onboarding part, so. Over the weekend, we're going to put an image up with some pointers (laughs) that point to different parts of the application saying, go here to save or do this to do something out, right? So it always gets done last. But I would, I think I I would stop with some of the feature development and I'd go back to the onboarding to build the trust and to try to be more valuable out of the box for me because the out of the box thing is not going to work for the 16 billion diverse adults across the world. I do think that's right.
1: Like, but most products do launch that way because, you know, your earliest, earliest adopters are going to figure it out anyways, right? right? If you have any sense of, if you have any sort of product market fit. But it's interesting. Like this space is moving so fast, right? That I think we're, we're very quickly moving past that audience, right? And the new products that are coming onto market. You know, are not going to be able to take advantage of this novelty effect that Andrew's talking about, where everything is so novel that like acquisition just sort of pours on, and we're going to very quickly shift into this world where some of these things I think do have to be uh, embedded in the product for for it to be like for it to be somewhat somewhat successful. And so, I would love to. I'd be very fascinated to look at. Like something like ChatGPT's cohorts, right? Like if, if I could get access to one cohort chart right now, that's the one I would love <laughs> to get access to. Yeah, just be- just because they're just like you know they usually when you see just such that fast growth so fast, and you your product team doesn't actually have time to build the things like that, all the all the piping and all the new user onboarding and stuff. Yeah, it tends to start to create issues, and you get,
2: end up in this like massive massive game of catch up yeah. i think the other thing that's really interesting and challenging for a lot of these big ones right you've got chat gpt through OpenAI. you've got pi you've got claude with inflection you've got llama the at bard and you know etc the, the challenge is like they all somewhat do the same thing right now for people and so like what's the Joff, when you're thinking about like, I have all f- I have four of these things on my phone, right? And you rotate around which ones you ask a question, okay. but like at some point, something is gonna change where you're gonna know that you need to pick this one because it's whatever, 10 times better than everything okay. else on your phone. And then you're not gonna go back to those other things. And what I haven't seen yet is like, what is that thing gonna be? I don't know that open, I don't know that anyone's like won this yet, but I'm really curious on like, we have everything kind of feels roughly similar right now. There are all these sort of like text prompt, you know, call and response sort of things with different context windows and different amounts of data can store. Like they're, they're what is going to be the thing that's like, oh no, I'm going to use this because it's head and shoulders above the other stuff out there that I could and, it, and it, it's not even close. And I don't know that we have that yet. I think it's more like people just trying it out, right? Trying a lot of different ones out. So yeah. I'm curious to see that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, the positioning on some of these are they're starting to try to carve out some space. I think Pi is really saying, "I want to be your personal agent or personalized AI in a way that I don't see others." Anthropic, I will say, is like the constitutional AI. the The idea that we are very cognizant of the societal impact of AI and we care very deeply about that. And some of the things that I see that team doing over at Anthropic seems to be a carve out, you know, really looking at the ethics of AI in a way that that others may not. And then on the Bard front, I feel like one of the ways that they'll play that is in a freshness. You know, one of the things that anyone using ChatGPT knows, it's like, I don't know anything before this day. <laughs> and, you know, it's like okay, so you're basically telling me you're stale right. and you don't have any real time information. And I think Google's always been that was a way that, that search real like one of the early ways that they really differentiated is they had a, fa- a fast cycle on getting through the web to get you the freshest information and having things like news new, news sites are require really fresh information. So when they brought in all of that news information and created Google News, so I think they're gonna, I think they'll wind up playing that more as they get their models together over there. And then OpenAI, I think the, the I'm sorry, on on the LLAMA folks, I think what they'll say is that we're gonna be open and transparent. And if you really care about privacy and want to run an AI model locally, and not run it up in a cloud at all they're you know, the closed model systems aren't going to work for you. You're going to want to tinker and you're going to be open. So that I think they'll try to differentiate on, on that. I could see a lot of vertical models being built with, with Llama because of that, because of the privacy things in HIPAA or, yeah. you know, finance financial industry. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: On this theme of offering suggestions. So is, is that I think, you know, one of the the core framework we teach around this and like user onboarding and activation and reforge is this is what Adam, you were mentioning, which is this framework of setup aha um, habit, which is setup is that the user has completed the necessary information that gives people the chance to experience the aha moment. So in LinkedIn terms, that's filling out some basic profile information so I can start recommending who to connect you with, yep. right? aha uh-huh, is like the user has experienced that core value prop for the first time and then habit is like signal that they've established a habit around the product and I think these moments in this framework still applies in the AI world and I would say that the two biggest mistakes that, uh, that we see often is most people work forwards in this framework and in terms of building their experience and you actually have to work backwards right you actually have to determine well what is that habit experience that I'm trying to get them into. What are those like notifications we call manufactured loops or environmental loops that I'm trying to get people into that I know help establish the habit. And then you can work your way backwards to, okay, well, what is the experience? What is the good friction that I need to put these folks through in the setup moment, you know, to like get them all the way into that habit. And so if you are, if, if you are listening and you're like thinking through these, I think this thing, I I think that whole framework and that mistake probably still, most common mistake probably uh, still applies. And then we already mentioned the other mistake, which is that especially like in that setup journey, uh, you know, I think we live in this world, like remove all friction and it's actually no, actually, these, these product, these products that are ecosystems, there's always a balance of good and bad, um, around this friction in order to create those successful moments. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so anyways, like I, I think all this ex- applied and now it's starting to get me to think we need to add a bunch of these AI case studies to, <laughs> into reforge to see, to see, to see where this goes.
2: What I really want to see, again, in the, in the, in the idea of offering suggestions, I, I mean, I think that the, Joff, you mentioned discovering the context uh, settings in OpenAI. It's it's kind of hidden right now, unless you find it on the internet and people are kind of bragging about what it is that they've trained, trained it to do, um, you might not know. And I think probably the average user doesn't know. What I think would be really interesting is take the opposite approach, rather than having somebody have to find and enter their own context, create the context for them, populate that as you're engaging with the AI and so, when you get to the context thing, it actually is already spelled out a bunch of your preferences, a- in plain language. And I think that would be interesting. And then you can let people refine that or add more to it. It also gives them a sense of what do I put here, which I think is not really that obvious for folks unless you see somebody else doing it on the internet. So yeah, so that's that's what I would do. I would, t- I would turn onboarding into context creation and store and show the data that you are turning into context so that people can say, oh, I, I get this now. That, that's the way to do it in a f- less frictionful environment. They kind of get the best of both worlds. I think that these context windows are not only an opportunity for
1: better onboarding, but there's feels like some very interesting UGC components behind this to help with both acquisition as well as engagement. So I think there's a ton of people searching out there, you know, for how to use these tools, right? So if you can quote unquote templatize some of these things and start to like index that, right? that probably starts to bring in a lot of traffic. Though, I would say a lot of these AI products, their main problem is not acquisition at the moment. If that's, so, you yeah. know, right? But I also think there's probably these, re, these re-engagement opportunities as well as like each one of these context windows can be sort of built for specific uses and specific use cases uh, around it. And once you start to learn something about somebody, you could probably start to make a lot of adjacent recommendations for how to use this and not to overkill my horizontal product analogy but that's also what you have to do in those products which is people tend to start on one use case but to actually get the long-term retention you need to get them to use it for multiple use cases around this because it's not always that the first use case they start off with is the highest frequency use case or most viral use case or whatever it is and so Getting them on multiple use cases is actually the thing that makes this thing sticky over the long term, versus just nailing um, that first thing that they they start with. Even though that's kind of the road to all destinations.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because the and um, that prompt engineering is so important to the responses that you get get back. So watching people who are really good constructing prompts, which are essentially these instructions to the AI model. This is the information that I'm looking for. The better prompt you write, the better information that you get back out. So right now, it's like a it's like a dark art. Like there's there's some people who understand it, some people who don't. A lot of guessworking going on. You know, there there's probably something in that to be explored. Um, you know, as a, a, someone who writes SQL not particularly well. There are tools that that have come about with different UIs that sit on top of it that help me construct a better SQL query, and therefore I get the right answers instead of the you know doing an improper join and getting the wrong answer. so I, I think there's probably something that I would be I would be exploring how to become how do you train someone to be a better prompt engineering without actually having to send them to school because there people don't want to sit in school and learn how to become the, the, you know, that prompt engineer. I, and I think a lot of it, I remember early days at, at LinkedIn, where, and, and you both remember this, because you, you were growth hacking away in the early days too. It was like, one of the learnings from that was that it was really a velocity game. When I was at LinkedIn and we figured out some of the most important gro- growth hacks out there, and I say that kind of in quotes. I'm not, you know, the, the good stuff. Like LinkedIn was growing, for better part of the seven years I was there, it growed two users per second. So we had figured some stuff out there, but it was it was through a lot of trial and error. The sheer velocity of the growth team at LinkedIn was was pretty astounding. It was really, it was about experiments. And it reminded me of, I was reading about this story about these professors, they, um, they were art professors, two our professors, and they went to grade students and they were trying to figure out which would help them be better artists. And one half of the class, they said, "We're you're gonna do a single piece of art. And at the end, we're gonna judge that piece of art. And the other class, uh, other half the class, they said, we're gonna judge you strictly on the number of pieces that you create. And the students who created more pieces of art were became better artists empirically than the students who created a single piece. So I, I think in the the dawning of this new AI onboarding, I think it's going to favor the teams that have velocity because we just don't know. We have a we we're going to borrow pa- patterns, as Adam said, from mobile and web learnings and. But yeah, there probably does need to be that new path that you create over at Reforge, Brian, that I can read and point people to, which is, okay, this is, we've now collectively as an industry, we've run thousands and thousands of experiments. And now in this new world, these are the handful of things that make a significant
1: difference. Last question on this topic before we transition to the next one. Joff, I'm interested, since you were kind of recently in the CPOC, I think, You know, something that I've observed is most companies at this point have been through what I feel like is milestone one of the AI map, right? Which is like, I think late last year, a lot of people said, "Eh, pause, we're going to rewrite our roadmaps around (laughs) this AI stuff, right? And and, and they did a lot of the, I don't know what to call it, like low hanging fruit, which is like, I'm going to, you know like help you write an email easier auto title stuff like like a lot of that you know basic content generation and it feels like we are kind of hitting the end of that milestone one that low hanging fruit um one i'm interested if you agree with that but two if you were in the product leadership seat how do you how do you even start to think and execute against this next wave are you Trying to embed it across all your teams, or yeah. you're trying to form a Skunkworks team to like just play with stuff. I don't know if he thought about that at all. At, well, at last. I,
0: so I 100% agree with your analysis that the way that I saw it can't come through because I, ha, you know, have a I have a friend group which I call CPO Circle, which is a bunch of Chief Product Officer. You both should be in it if you're not already, and uh, we just kind of banter sometimes. Around what we're learning, and it was uh, kind of went like this: You show up at the shareholder meeting. Your your investors say, "What's your AI story?" The CEO came back and said to the head of R and D, which is the CPO and the CTO, "Hey, what's our AI story?" <laughs> and and then everyone said, "Let me get back to you tomorrow." And you met with the team that night. And it basically, you picked all the low-hanging fruit. AI happens to do really great things with language, um, so it was a lot about either summarizing our written form bodies of of content or creating bodies of content. So that that was that was the checkbox. So everyone was like, I needed to be able to say in the next shareholder meeting, "Oh yeah, we have an AI story, <laughs> and here's the first proof point, but you won't believe what's coming after this." so you know for me the the i feel like when you have these new technology waves a lot of what happens is we get really excited about the tech and we just play with it and we just bathe ourselves in it and we do things that you know a lot of it doesn't particularly add value or isn't particularly strategic but then at some point someone steps back whether it's a product person or a designer and they just go back to the jobs to be done and they say, well, let's actually look at the jobs to be done that we're trying to serve. First off, are there new jobs to be done now that we have this enabling technology that we need to consider that we've always wanted but we weren't able to do? And now Now technology allows us to do that. Let's start there, and then let's go through the core jobs to be done. Um, another LinkedIn story, I remember, we, we were trying to figure out what the thing was in the beginning, Some folks internally thought that it should be like the next monster job board, and then myself and others um, thought it should follow Meet Reed Hoffman's original vision, which is really that the professional network is a powerful tool at your disposal. It can make you a better professional. It can make you smarter. It can help you get work done better. It, It just improves your whole lot in life. So we, we were kind of back and forth and arguing with one another about what LinkedIn should be. And then finally, uh, Jeff Weiner, who is the CEO, said, Okay, Alan Blue, who is one of the seven founders, was a VP of product over there. And he said to Alan, He's like, Why don't you write down all the jobs to be done that LinkedIn could be? And Alan went off with a small group of people and he came back and there was a crazy number of jobs to be done. Like, uh, uh, like Helen had boiled it down to 150. <laughs> we're like we're like, okay, that's not going to work. <laughs> and then we, we went through like a protracted period of heavy discussion, very lively, as one could imagine, between what we should support. And then that boiled down to about 12. And then the flagship product, which I was responsible from a product perspective. That's most of what you see when you type in www.linkedin.com and the mobile application. We had boiled that down to really focus on seven of those use cases. And that that really helped us get focus. In fact, if you go into the mobile application today and look at the tab bar at the bottom, each one of those buttons reflects one of the jobs to be done that we wanted to be amazing at. And I don't I don't think they've changed um, since I was there, I think we we pretty much realized what what it should be. So yeah, I would say the the next order should be people thinking from the customer back. What what jobs to be done? Do you want to support? You know, how's the how's the technology? This new technology gonna enable it? And it it sounds fairly boring, or not? You know, not or maybe not boring like just like classic one oh one stuff. But I think we're just we got too excited about what's out there, and we're we're just playing and throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall. I think we need to be more thoughtful.
1: Okay. Last last question on this now that you is I'm interested, was there a job to be done that was like on the edge that LinkedIn almost became but ended up getting cut,
0: if you remember that? Oh my God. No, I mean we we got yeah we got some stuff certainly wrong in the early mobile days though. We we thought, for example, that we would have a mobile web work across all of the apps. I think a number of people tried to take that universal approach, I think Facebook did too. And then it just, it wasn't, that wasn't gonna be performant with the technology at the time. So then we wound up building native apps. I remember we had one period where we, (laughs) myself and Kiran Prasad, who is my engineering counterpart, who later um, moved over to product, is now the chief product officer over at Nextdoor, we argue, we were making an argument that LinkedIn should have multiple applications and we shouldn't try to stuff everything into one application. So we said, we, we don't want jobs in the core flagship application, which was complete blasphemy, because it's like, <laughs> wait a minute, that's what that's what LinkedIn's known for. Like, why wouldn't we have jobs there? And, and our, our line of thinking was, well, you get a new job once every five years because there's turnover, 20% of the population changes jobs every year. So it's like once every five years, you're gonna change jobs. So why, if we wanna build something that's everyday useful, do you have that job thing just sitting there? We should create a jobs application. So we had created a jobs app, which was specific and it was gonna be amazing if you were looking for a job and we weren't gonna cl- um, clutter up the flagship application. I mean, this was crazy heated. And of course it has all sorts of implications on, you know, jobs liquidity, you know, but, but so we make a lot of money. It winds up selling, you know, jo- job links on, on LinkedIn. So that that one we we ran with that for probably longer than we should have. And now jobs is in the LinkedIn application, the flagship application. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah
2: my discussion topic today is around a piece of news that adobe came out with last week like the middle or so of last week Mm -hmm. and yes this is the same adobe who recently announced that they were spending 20 billion dollars to acquire figma the darling of plg and design about a year ago and someone we talked about brian a, a couple episodes ago on unsolicited feedback so last week adobe announced that they were finally launching Photoshop for the web into general availability after being in beta for two years. So that seems like a long time, but Photoshop is a very complicated product. So I am not surprised it took that long. And they made a lot of iterations during that beta. So in the web model, you get a bunch of the popular desktop AI tools. So speaking of AI, they have this Firefly generative AI model, and it does some pretty cool stuff. A lot of people have been uh, making really interesting things with a couple of the features are this idea of generative fill so you can basically expand patterns and you can add new things. Basically, you can just do text-based image ma- manipulation in something like 100 different languages. So you can say, I want a starry night with a moon in the upper corner. No, that not that size moon, a brighter one. And You basically can just keep iterating until you get to a picture that you like, which for somebody cannot design to save their life like me is very beneficial and so uh, so they released this out of beta they streamlined the UX they added a bunch of the standard Photoshop tools and features not all of them but but several and then they said that they're going to add a bunch more later like the lasso tool and some of the things that people have gotten accustomed to so the reason that I think this is significant is one Adobe is kind of all over the place with what they're doing around different design tools. There's some starting to be a little bit of overlap between some of these things that they've either acquired or built or or whatever. But I think it's a really good, interesting lesson in PLG pricing and packaging. And there's some good and some bad from this release. So I'm going to cover both. I actually think there's probably more good than bad here. So, you know, there you go. Uh, I'll turn my normal cynical hot takes into something positive. Hey, hey, we, we are both positive That's and negative right. here yeah. on Not Solicited Feedback. Right. Fair, fair.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: okay, so first, the good. One is, it is no small feat to translate the desktop experience of Photoshop to the web. The team there has done a really nice job with it. Uh, Scott Belsky is a great product leader. I know he listens to this pod maybe from time to time. So good job, Scott. It's a really good product. I know i played around a bit with it. So good job. The streamlining of the UX was a huge improvement. Personally, as somebody who's tried to use Photoshop on the desktop for a long time, but never really spent enough time with it, it's way easier to navigate this new version. And it's also way easier to make updates to navigation and tool organization on the web than it is in a piece of desktop software. So they took this opportunity as a way to do that. And I think to maybe even broaden a bit of the audience that they might attract to make it easier to get get started with this. The third good thing here is they're introducing collaboration. So as they've probably learned with Figma and they've seen with things like Canva and some of the other uh, products, competitive products out there, collaboration is pretty key to growth, especially on a tool like this. And so they're taking what used to be a very single player experience I make a layered Photoshop file on my desktop, and they're opening it up to multiplayer. So now you can invite other people to comment on your files, to view them. I think maybe make some edits, but I'm not 100% sure, but definitely comment and view. And they don't have to have a Photoshop subscription to do that. So you've just opened up the door to a whole bunch of other people who may have not wanted to pay $20 20 to $50 a month for a suite of of tools to get exposed to this and be able to use it and collaborate with people on the web, which is pretty cool. Um, so that's another one. The fourth good thing, I think, is audience expansion. And I mentioned this at the this sort of kickoff of this. So uh, Adobe has this hardcore editing software for the desktop. That's Photoshop, that's Illustrator, that's like the the desktop software that they had. Then they have something that kind of rivals Canva, which is this sort of basic experience, that's Adobe Express. And now they have this thing that's kind of landed a little bit in the middle. And so they have something that attempts to bring the power of Photoshop to a more mainstream, larger and web-based audience with Photoshop for web. This is like the beginning of this, right? I know it's been two years, but still they're at the beginning. Uh, So that's a good thing. They're starting to probably branch out and connect between these these tools. They're exposing a lot more people to the AI tooling, which is great, because that's going to open the door to a lot more people who are not hardcore designers, but can type words into a box. And uh, so now they've got this. They've got, you know, strategically, they've got the UX design and development people with a Figma acquisition. So they're really kind of like capturing most of the people who want to design things on the internet now. Um, no matter the type of design that you're doing, which I think is pretty good and interesting for them. uh, You know, they're, they're, they're remaining the, the leader in, in design writ large. So that's the good stuff. I could pause there and see if y'all want to pile on to the good before I transition to the bad,
0: but please let me know. Ooh, (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I'll plus one some stuff too. You know, Photoshop, because I am a Photoshop user and I really, I wait, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> is... I'm a photographer. Oh, okay. uh, I, I, got I got it. into okay. the product through photography. And then I, it was a companion app to what, you know, later on I wound up using in Lightroom. So I would say I love the power, and I dread the complexity of Photoshop. <laughs> yeah. It's just like... I'm like, oh, my God, this is making my head spin, and I have to have, a like, a, a search box open next to it to do searches to figure out how to do what I know in my mind I want to do. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is, man, Photoshop is 35 years old. Technology is like dog years. That app is over 200 years old. It's just... Friggin' old. Yeah. So the thing about it is, you know, you can't thirty-five years ago know what you're building when you're framing that house. So I think what's essentially happened is it's become the the Winchester Mystery House, right? It had like no master plan, yeah, and you just keep on adding rooms to it. So the good one, good thing, and Adam, this is what I'm plus wanting is. You know, someone stepped back and said, okay, maybe we don't need 110 rooms and, you know, 47 bathrooms. Maybe we can streamline it. So the streamlining is either that's a feature, not a flaw, or or it's simply like the team's like, it took seven years to get this far. And we're going to take the next seven years to add the the other 120 features that we want from the desktop application. Yeah. You know, we'll we'll see how that plays out. but i I think the you know certainly the emphasis on AI first. And then, yeah, I think the collaboration, I don't know, man, that because I went over and I, I just took a look at it. it's it's still buried in there. It is. like there's a comment thing. And one of the things that I learned when I was at at Atlassian is we like Adobe, we have a very large portfolio of products, which is good and bad. But one of the things I learned about the collaborative features, those features actually need to live as a platform service so that when they're used across applications, because the idea at both Adobe and Atlassian is that you're going to use multiple applications. It has to have a level of familiarity. So when I look at the way they have commenting over there, I'm like, ah, that doesn't look like yeah. you know, collaboration first, like what has happened over Figma. So. I think that's going to be a journey. It feels a little bit like a checkbox feature right now in in something that really needs to get brought out to be a platform service and work the same way across all of the applications. I think my, my
1: quick thought on this is that it
0: feels like
1: a defensive strategic move. And I don't mean that in a bad way, right? Because if you're sitting there as the product leader a few years ago, right, and you're watching the, the growth of Figma and you're watching the you know, growth of Canva and these other tools. I and and you're also looking at like, hey, I've got this Photoshop product, probably still does what? Like how much money per year is it is it maybe it's worth a oh, billion, billion dollars? Billions yeah. of dollars. Like like tens right, of billions. Right. That's yeah. I think when we sit in startup land and we look at these new products, we feel like those types of things disappear overnight, but the reality is that they don't, right? Um, twenty years. And yeah, totally, right? And so and so, you know, you're sitting there a couple years ago and you're trying to think of like, well, what am I going to do here? With a product that that's old to Joff's and has that type of install base, You it's hard. It's almost impossible to play offense with that because you have so much um, like built up. And so typically I, I would look at that and be like, well, what what do we need to do here to be to play defense on this product and play offense in other other areas where whether that's a new products, whether that's the Figma acquisition whether it's other things and so and so i think in that sense like that probably you know in hindsight feels like the right decision a couple of years ago like well hey like to play defense here we probably got to transition to this other web we probably have to build in some basic collaboration features i imagine a few years ago they my, maybe they were thinking about the AI pieces, but I, I like I don't know. Like I, I don't think the I don't I don't think there's the models were at a place where where that was um like super super clear. So, anyways, that's my read on the that's my read on the situation. I know you've got some thoughts on the pricing. I think that kind of translates into. Maybe some of the decisions that they made on pricing yeah.
0: as as well. Yeah, well, that, that that spawned one one point, uh, one quick point yeah. that Brian brought up is that, you know there, there's probably from a business perspective, Adobe running their own business. There's advantage in getting everybody over to a single platform. It's like, hey, I don't actually want to support. Mac and Windows and iOS and Android and the web. It's, let's take all of the applications and get them onto a singular platform. You know, you know, a smaller number of platforms. There's a, you know, on the web, let's have it be a browser-based thing instead of a desktop thing. And then you're gonna have, you're gonna have iOS and you're gonna have the Android for a number of those applications. So when you start to get these teams that are s- spun into all these different platforms, they just, you don't have enough horsepower in there. And you wind up starving all the all the children so <laughs> I, I think there's some economic uh, yeah. advantage
2: yeah and i think the earliest attempt at this was you know and a smart one was moving to the subscription model for even for the desktop software right because mm-hmm. n- then they have sort of forced upgrade happening and so they don't have to support these i mean i've probably had photoshop 3 still on my computer from my like 10 yeah. fi- year old mac you know I, they don't want to support that anymore, um, and so now they don't have to, right? But I think uh, you both raised, Joff. You raised some really interesting points that I'm going to cover a little bit in the bad. Okay, so mm. first, I want to. I, I, this isn't the feedback sandwich, right? We're not going good, bad, good here. But nice. but I, no. I but I do want I do want to say that there is a lot of good here, like a lot of good, especially when you consider just the sheer size of the Adobe organization and what it must have taken to like get this stuff done, right? Like the organizational cruft is certainly there, the bigger bigger you get. So first of all, let's talk about pricing. So I think pricing is a question mark for me. During the beta phase, they tested and dropped a freemium version of the product. So they did have a freemium version that they tried out. It is no longer in existence. And I don't know why, but maybe we'll get Scott Balski on here at some point. He can tell you, Brian. We but demand an answer from We demand, Scott, we demand. I will yeah. add him on Twitter and him and the other 200 of oh, my yeah. followers will see me. And it's
0: X, if you keep on- <laughs> Sorry, it's X. Yeah, I refuse. I
2: refuse, I refuse. I'm still calling Max HBO. I'm never gonna change. <laughs> so you can get the the Photoshop on the web with a seven-day free trial, cool. But that's a pretty short period of time to play around with the product, especially a product that, as you acknowledge, Jeff, is decently complex to use. Now, the web version's simpler, but still not totally simple. And especially if they're introducing it to a new audience, which, Brian, as you mentioned, maybe they're not. Maybe this is just defensive. That could be fine. But again, with the UX and some of the collaboration changes, it seems like they're trying to get some new people. So one of the things I think we've learned with a product like Canva is that freemium for this type of product works super well, like Canva has exploded because you can use the product pretty extensively. And then when you want the more advanced stuff, you pay for it. And by that point, you're hooked on this product. I pay Canva every year because I'm hooked, right? Like, I know how to use that tool now. They hit me with enough upgrade paywalls that I was like, I got to do this because I can't quite get the things done that I need to. So, but I do know that Adobe tested this. So, it's possible that they learned something different, right? So, that is very possible that they could have learned something. The other thing is because they're doing a free trial, the way that they're trying to handle onboarding to come back to our first discussion topic is that they're showing people video tutorials and some slight interactive examples, which fine, but I don't think there's any real substitute for using the product to make stuff and for trying out your use case. And they're also really limiting the viral nature of the product by paywalling it. So if I am excited about if I get a collaborative invite and I'm excited about trying out, trying it out, I get hit with a free trial like pay. I have to confirm a payment option before I even really use the product, which is kind of a lot. And so if I want that to spread, that's gonna be be tough. So that's sort of one thing. Pricing and the whole like PLG roll up there. The second thing, and and Joff, you mentioned this with the platform play. It seems a little bit like a classic case of shipping the org chart. So, like Adobe has a big, pretty siloed org. They have tons of products for designers, but there's not a lot of connective tissue and similar patterns between them. So, the collaboration example that you gave is a perfect one. Like, collaboration and multiplayer, the concept is right, but the implementation is non standard and it's kind of buried and it's not really right. And so, like, if you really want collaboration to be in your product, like you make that a first-class citizen, it becomes part of, the, part of the experience. And so I think the other challenge is because there's very little integration between these products, as you deepen your use case, the, the pricing doesn't really lend itself to like trying other tools in the arsenal. So as you grow your skills, if, if you do, and maybe you don't, you have to decide upfront if you want to try out something new. And I think that's a barrier to that. Now I know a bit about Adobe and the inner workings. And so I know a lot of the decisions on like when you pay and where you pay and when you have to sign up, have a lot to do with legacy infrastructure. Again, you mentioned 35 year old product. Like that product was launched when I was like six or seven years old. So, um, it's been around for a bit, but things like infra and authentication and stuff. Definitely a little disjointed. It seems like they're due for a little bit of a replatform, unless they just want to like let some of this stuff die. And so that's sort of the second point. And then the last one I would just mention is, I kind of hinted at this, they're like one foot in the PLG world and one foot not. So again, they got the collaboration to multiplayer concept right. People want to do that, but the experience is not there yet. And then the cornerstone of a PLG motion is pricing and trialing and freemium and things like that. And those just aren't quite there yet. They're not going to lend themselves to growing adoption of the product with monetization second. And so, again, the point you brought up, Brian, is maybe that's not the goal. Maybe the goal is defensive and we just need to have the base set of features that, so we can say that, that it exists and people don't leave Maybe it's not new customer acquisition, but it's tough to say. Yeah, this this feels like a stop the bleeding. Yeah,
1: right. But, right, and, and protect protect that revenue revenue stream as much as we possibly can, so that we can develop these like new territories where the teams can move faster there aren't ingrained like user habits that we're afraid to break right like all all of those types of pieces and i don't think that's a bad thing i think there is there are times to play defense right and i my guess is the most of the time the struggles actually come from places you need to play defense you're actually trying to play offense and there's just like so many hurdles in the way that you know you're setting the wrong goals, wrong expectations. You're trying to move at a speed that becomes like just really difficult to impossible. Like like all of those types of, all of those types of pieces. And so that's, that's how I kind of read the scenario of like this first step and even like to something like the pricing the free trial if that is the case if that is the truth then it's like yeah I probably don't need a freemium strategy most of the people that are gonna be showing up at my front door on this are people who are familiar with Photoshop and they're probably just using this as a like hey like do I want what is the web version like is it enough that is it enough that you know if I was considering Figma because it had a web version but I'm familiar with Photoshop like is it enough to keep me on the Photoshop platform yeah. versus like ma- making the full full switch? And I probably only need like seven days to poke around and right. and, and see that stuff. But, you know, I, I think that Joff's earlier point is like these worlds probably have to merge at some point. Right. And I don't know exactly how they merge of how they use this massive Photoshop platform to start to move audiences into these other like new product areas as well. So like that's the second part that I think yeah. about when I- Yeah,
0: I, would, that. I, I think that line of thinking is interesting, Brian. It's, you know, if you look at especially these large multi-product companies, you, you've got a portfolio allocation across your product line. You've got your core products, which, you know, 70% of your investment typically goes in your core products. That's, those are essentially the iron bank, right? Like they are the thing that- Produce the money that allows you to get over to the other two categories. The the second category is your adjacent products. Those are things that are, you know, similar to your main audience, but over into an adjacent field. So you you rattled off a couple of those. Add on the new products that are adjacent to Photoshop are things like Figma. Their, um, Photoshop Elements. There's Adobe Express. Those are more about the democratization of creating stuff right and then you have another 10 percent of your portfolio investment is typically in your hey i'm going to plant seeds for the next nine years and those are those are your far out ideas so you know one thing that as a cash cow product you got to think about is like hey am i trying to reinvent this thing or am i trying to maintain this growth on the core, I'm going to milk that thing, and then my, you know, additional dollars that I'm bringing on are going to go into new category creation or extension lines and things like that. So, if, if your goal, then strategic goal, is to use that again as the iron bank, that cash cow, then, you know, I think it's, it probably makes sense the pricing the way they have it. The the main thing that I would worry about if I were Adobe would be the generational shift. Mm-hmm. And in, in tool set, so I would be, I'd be looking to wait a minute. I actually do. If if I don't pay attention to the next gen, generation Z or whatever we're calling them now, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you you'd have to you'd have to figure out your educational pricing. I know for like I learned Photoshop because it was like I had borrowed it from a friend when I was you know, in, in school. Borrowed Adobe, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think Adobe had a, I think Adobe and Microsoft Windows had a blind eye to that yeah. stuff in the early day because they're like, "Look, you as a student can't afford this stuff, but you will someday be able to afford it. So go ahead and use it." Because I don't know how to get it to you cheaply without others taking advantage that I don't want to take advantage. Yeah, I know Adobe does have some educational pricing. They do, but it's still expensive, right? For it's not like dirt, like educational pricing for students is like free (laughs) that's That's what it should be because i have no money you're cutting into either you know paying for school or luxury items like beer and clothing so luxury yeah (laughs) so so i you know i i think that's probably what i would i i think on the pricing i think they probably know what they're doing there, although I agree with all of your points, if you do want it to be next gen, but I don't know. I think the next gen is gonna be focused on other stuff.
2: My my guess is the next gen is gonna be focused probably on the AI and like, how can we do, how can I open up Photoshop and for most people, it's like a text prompt and I just start typing what I want to see on the screen. And so I think that's yeah. really that's really interesting. And I, I would say, in all of that stuff, Firefly is incredibly good uh, at the mm-hmm. the image manipulation and generating yeah. generating stuff. Way better than some of yeah. the other embedded. Way better than Canva's tools, honestly. If I'm being honest, for for right. doing AI and AI generated yeah. imagery, not yeah. quite the ChatGPT or Dolly or Mid Journey. But also, yeah. that's not really what you're trying to go for with with you know Photoshop. Yeah, so, um, no,
0: I, I this I haven't played with it, but stuff that I've seen come out of it, except for the random you know sixth finger on a hand every so often, <laughs> it's uh, it does look good. It, and and you know that's an interesting point. And you brought this up in your in your in the pros part of it is it'd be great to see that far more front and center because the thing is if you were to if you said to the team. Hey, I want you to build the Photoshop that you always wanted. The that team now, 35 years later, if they started from a blank canvas and moved up, they're gonna have a different view of it. So they they have to preserve enough of the this is what makes Photoshop Photoshop. Right. So it's like, how do you preserve the photoshopy? And you you probably have an opportunity to take one or two bold steps in coming off of your legacy and inventing a new legacy. And and I think your the points that you brought up would be the the places to do it. It's Go multiplayer and, and go AI. And neither of those are as prominent as they could be, especially the AI stuff, because I feel like that is supernatural yeah. to the application itself. And and I I think the the mental model of of Photoshop could be different. You you could slightly change it. Yeah. And like you said, it it's almost like I want a prompt box at the very top of it, saying, "How can I manipulate this image for you?" Or "How can I help you co-create it?" Right. What would you like to see? That is different because today, when I open up Photoshop, its mental model is, "Give me an image that you want me to manipulate," and yeah. I have to upload something. And then I get dropped into just a blank canvas with a load of tools over on the left to manipulate it, many of which I I have not remembered what those icons do. So (laughs) I have to like I have to like touch each one of them, have it expand to explore and refresh my memory of it. So I think there's probably something on the conceptual model that I would be playing harder at especially on that AI yeah and
2: you talk about like context awareness within image generative AI for imagery it would be really fascinating because in Photoshop Mm -hmm. a lot of times designers have a set of standard filters that they apply to every single thing that they dump in there and if you didn't have to maintain that and you could just say I want my set of standard filters applied to this image go that'd be pretty interesting Um, yeah so Anyway, a couple of things, Jeff. Um, It's Generation Alpha. That's the next generation that comes after Gen Z. And then Adobe Photoshop. I looked this up. $12.9 billion in revenue in 2023 uh, or so far in 2023 or last year or something. What Adobe is doing overall... That's just Photoshop. That's just Photoshop. Photoshop. And what Adobe is doing overall, I think it said in the last quarter, they did almost $5 billion of revenue for the company so i don't know how that changes quarter to quarter but if you yeah. extrapolate that out that's photoshop doing half of adobe's revenue yeah. uh or slightly more so
0: that that that's amazing that can't be running right. <laughs> like that whole that's astounding yeah like it really is the Massive. iron bank yeah like you can't mess with the iron bank right man. you can't go premium adam shame on you <laughs> well
2: like, really Shame, you line, know man. someone who's going to be bold enough is going to try it. Um, but what do I? What do I know? Do? I don't work. I don't work there. I'm just armchair quarterbacking. Uh-huh. <laughs> to be fair, like
1: like you said previously, they did make the transition to subscription pretty successfully, and that yes.
2: must have been an incredible, scary move. Oh yeah, move at the time. So very, very yeah, a hundred percent. Well, what do you think, Brian? Is this it? Are we done? That's just- yeah. This is great. Yeah. Jeff, I apologize.
1: I don't have you know, my, you know, perfect, you know, mic and all that stuff today. So I appreciate you rolling with uh, yeah. the Contes and stuff.
0: Well, this was super fun. Yeah. Thanks great. for inviting me. I, w- I love this stuff. It was, it, I learned a bunch and just the banter between the three of us was really fun. It felt like old friends getting together and talking about product shit that they love. So yeah. So, okay. That's great. Yeah. Bye guys. All right. Thanks.
1: All right. Thanks everybody. We need to wrap here. Thank you to Joff for being an amazing guest and Adam for standing in for Fareed as co-host. I'm sure we're gonna talk about AI topics a lot, but this topic of how to onboard users to just a new technology and a new completely different experience, I think is absolutely fascinating. We actually have a bunch of artifacts around user activation onboarding on Reforge, if you wanna check that out. I think in addition, you know, the conversation around Adobe, What a tricky situation, just this product that is just printing billions of dollars of money, but you still have to make some major moves to keep up with the times and stop bleeding. That's a very tricky situation to be in. Enjoyed that conversation with both Joff and Adam talking about the pros and cons around that as well. Other than that, please, please, please leave some reviews if you're enjoying this podcast on either Spotify or Apple. And you can also sign up to get email notifications on new episodes at reforge.com slash podcast slash unsolicited feedback. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next
0: week.